today, and Ruth is a really interesting book for a number of reasons. One of them being that the, the main character of the book is a female. Now, that may not seem that strange in the modern era, but this was really highly unusual for ancient documents. There are 36 books named after males in the Bible, and only two named after females. We have Ruth, and we have, can someone else tell me the other one? Esther, oh, that was quick, that's good, this church is onto it, that's good. So we have these two books with females as main characters, and they must be important, or we wouldn't have them included in our Bible. Now this book, Ruth, was not only about a female, but it was about a female foreigner, an outsider. And in, in that culture of the day, not only were females below males, but also your heritage, your race, was incredibly important. So to elevate this female foreigner, this outsider, Ruth, to the status of having a book named after them is very intriguing, it's very interesting. Another reason this book is, is interesting is that it's, at its heart there's this romantic love story, which is an unconventional love story by modern standards, but still a love story, which is really not common among the books in the Bible. There's lots of relationships, there's lots of, you know, this person where this person and this happened and this happened, but it's not usually the main subject of an entire book. And we all love a good love story, don't we? If you watch movies, if you listen to songs, of course, it's hard to avoid that most of them are about love, most of them are love stories. And this book probes the depths of what love and faithfulness and redemption is all about. And it begs the question, how can you tell that you love someone? There are a number of ways to answer that question. Let's look at a couple of quick examples that give us some context. My first really small example, okay, little thing, it's a small thing, I acknowledge that right now, but it involves something called throw cushions. Well, I call them throw cushions. You might call them pillows, you might just call them cushions, but talking about these things, this is a picture of my bed at home, right there, okay. Now, my bed at home, previous to being married, previous to, which is 14 years ago this month, previous to that, my bed at home had precisely one pillow, okay? One pillow. That's all I wanted. That's all I needed. I'm moving around too much, I think, getting too excited. Let's cut that down. One pillow. That, that's all I needed in my bed at home, and I was happy with that system. It worked. I was happy with that. But when I embarked on this journey of marriage, I discovered in my bed there were all these other pillows there, these pillows that, to me, they didn't seem to serve a particular purpose. I'm a bit... Uh, I didn't like the feeling of them sometimes. Some of them were actually quite scratchy to lie on. I'm like, I can't, I can't even use this pillow. What is this doing here? And for me, those pillows, they get thrown on the floor when you actually want to use the bed for sleeping. And then when you get up, you've got to put them back on the bed, otherwise you're going to run over them on the floor. But because I love my wife and I love Cass, I said, look, this is a small sacrifice to make. I can put some pillows on my bed. It's, it's a small thing. Now, I'm a bit... Am I going crazy here, or is 10 pillows a lot of pillows to be on your bed? Is that, is that am I normal or not? I'm going to do a little quick poll this morning because I want to know, it's been a burning question. If you have more than four pillows on your bed, can you please raise your hand? Okay, I'm not the only ones, not the only ones. There is no condemnation for those in Christ, okay? <laughs> if you've got more than six pillows, can you keep your hand raised? More than eight pillows? Still got a few. More than 10? More than 12? Okay, that's it. We're, um, okay, not too crazy. We're at the top of the end of the bell curve, but we're not, we're not completely out of there. I just want to make sure you don't forget about the throw rug as well. That's on the next slide as well, too. You need the throw rug, too. And I just wanted to point out that my daughter, Avea, that's her bed, the second slide. She takes after her mum as well. There's plenty of cushions on there and some 
stuffed animals just to throw into the mix as well too, you know. But it's a small thing, isn't it? I love my wife. I'm happy to make that little sacrifice. That's a tiny thing. My kids have got a very loving mum and very loving grandparents, and they do all sorts of things for their, for their kids, for their grandparents. They sit through these long dance shows, long explanations of their video games that they're playing. I remember Cass's dad sitting with Avea, and she told him every name for her 40 Beanie Boos and their birthdays, and he would sit there and listen to her because he loved her. He was prepared to make a sacrifice, to make the effort for her, because you love your kids and your grandkids. And for, for parents, uh, the cost, you, you, you can't get a sermon through without me without hearing some statistics, okay? So here they are, get them out of the way early. The cost of bringing up a child for a typical middle-income family in Australia is approximately $406,000. I probably should have looked that up before I had four of them, but there are huge sacrifices to be made for children. We love them, so we do it, don't we? If you love someone, you will put in the extra effort. You will sacrifice for those you love. And this book, Ruth, it examines the depths of love, particularly during hard times. Let me just pray for us before we get into this passage. Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for your love, for the different ways that is revealed in your word for this story of love and redemption, what it tells us about your heart, God. Please just illuminate the ways this needs to light up our, our hearts, Father. We're your children. We're your family. Here this morning, we want to hear from you. We want, we want you to speak to us, to learn more about how your love lights up our life, God. So just help us to be open to you, to learn something new from you this morning, Father. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So let's get into this passage. There's a lot in here. Ruth 1, it says, Once upon a time, it was back in the days when judges led Israel, there was a famine in the land. A man from Bethlehem in Judah left home to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. His sons were named Malan and Kilian, all Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They all went to the country of Moab and settled there. Elimelech died. And Naomi was left, she and her two sons. The sons took Moabite wives. The name of the first was Orpah, the second Ruth, and they lived there in Moab for the next 10 years. But then the two brothers, Malan and Kilian, died. Now the woman was left without either her young men or her husband. And one day she got herself together, she and her two daughters-in-law, to leave the country of Moab and set out for home. She had heard that God had been pleased to visit his people and give them food. And so she started out from the place she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law with her, on the road back to the land of Judah. And after a short while on the road, Naomi told her two daughters-in-law, go back, go home and live with your mothers, and may God treat you as graciously as you treated your deceased husbands and me. May God give each of you a new home and a new husband. She kissed them and they cried openly. They said, no, no. We're going on with you to your people. But Naomi was firm. Go back, my dear daughters. Why would you come with me? Do you suppose I still have sons in my womb who can become your future husbands? Go back, dear daughters. On your way, please. I'm too old to get a husband. Even if I said there's still hope this very night, got a man and had sons, can you imagine being satisfied to wait until they were grown up? Would you wait that long to get married again? No, dear daughters. It's a bitter pill for me to swallow, more bitter for me than for you. God has dealt me a hard blow. And it's kind of strange how like there's a passage explaining why it's not possible for them. It's like 
for us it's pretty obvious. It's like, well, that's going to be a huge age gap. It's going to be really weird. But you have to understand that in this culture, family was everything. There's no safety net. If you didn't have family to look after you, life was going to be really difficult. So to protect women who lost their husbands, it was customary for the brother of the husband to take that woman as his wife, particularly if they hadn't had children yet. So anyway, I find that strange when I read that. It's like, yeah, well, obviously you can't give them if you haven't had them yet, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's very clear that there's no future for them there. And again, they cried openly. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth embraced her and held on. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is going back home to live with her own people and gods. Go with her. But Ruth said, don't force me to leave you. Don't make me go home. Where you go, I go. And where you live, I'll live. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I'll die. And that's where I'll be buried. So help me, God. Not even death itself is going to come between us. When Naomi saw that Ruth had her heart set on going with her, she gave in. And so the two of them traveled on together to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was soon buzzing. Is this, is this really our Naomi? And after all this time? But she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. The strong one has dealt me a bitter blow. I left here full of life. And God has brought me back with nothing but the clothes on my back. Why would you call me Naomi? God certainly doesn't. The strong one ruined me. And so Naomi was back. And Ruth the foreigner with her, back from the country of Moab, they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So the scene is set. This first chapter, it introduces the characters. It sets up the story of Ruth. And something that can be really undervalued in the Bible, I feel, is just how real, how raw, how honest the passages are. Those last verses of what Naomi speaks, call me bitter, the strong one has dealt me a bit of blow there. They're tough, but they're real. Nothing is sugar-coated. It doesn't pretend that Naomi has taken these blows and she's taken them well and she's moving on with her life and things are okay. It shows that she is at her wit's end. She's lost her husband. She has lost her two sons. And her sons didn't survive long enough to have children of their own. That's, that's huge in any culture. But in this culture, where family is everything, She's lost everything. Her name will no longer be continued. She's got no family line. She might eke out an existence for a few months or years, and then she'll be forgotten forever. So it's tough. It's tough about this. It's real about it, though. It's raw. It doesn't try to hide the the harshness reality of life sometimes. And, And life can be hard like that sometimes, can't it? There's through no fault of our own sometimes... Circumstances can happen. Tragedies can attack our lives. It can lead to challenging times. We, we all know what that's like, don't we? Relationships can break down. There can be sickness. There can be journeying through cancer with a friend or a family member or yourself. Life can be tough, and that's, that's the truth. And this passage does not try to hide the truth or the reality that life can be tough and harsh. But there is a light within this story, and the light comes from a very unlikely source a girl from moab named ruth she is the one that gives this story hope and why she's the reason why naomi was not forgotten we're still talking about her now to this day so what was it about ruth that was different how does she continue to be loving and faithful to naomi through this bleak picture i want to talk about just three ways this morning that make the love and the faithfulness that Ruth displays unique 
and why that matters in our lives today. The first one is that Ruth loves despite hardships. She's a female, she's a widower, she's childless, she's an immigrant. We talked a bit, about, a bit already about being a female, what that means in that culture and the importance of family in that culture. Meaning that being a widower, widower and a childless, that was a deeply difficult position to be in. But Ruth also in this account, she's actually, um, she's immigrating from Moab to Judah. Now Moabites, they were like the ancient enemies of those in Judah. This is like, they, you know, the, the people from Judah, they, they really hated the Moabites, you know. And this is way worse than someone from New South Wales moving to Queensland. We hate them for some of the year, you know. The rest of the year we're a bit more cordial, you know. We're a bit nicer to them, you know. And in this passage, it always calls Ruth the Moabite. It continues through the rest of the book. Six times it talks about, it says Ruth, and it's Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite in so many different passages. Why does it always continually remind us that she's a Moabite? It's really important to the story because the Moabites, they weren't light. Imagine being Ruth. You're traveling to somewhere where people won't like you just because of your race. It's outside of her control. It's completely unfair. It's unjust. But she chooses, even despite those hardships, to be faithful, to be loving, to be sacrificial in this situation. And she follows Naomi to Judah. Now, Australia, we've got quite a lot of immigrants, people that were born outside of Australia. Can I just get your hands raised? If anyone here was born outside of Australia, has moved to Australia during their lifetimes, yeah, a decent, a decent crew. There's more Morgan up. A decent crew, you know. Why do people move to Australia? Why does anyone move to a new country? There's a huge cost in moving. You're going away from your family and your friends, from the security of what you've always known. So why, well, why would you do it? It's for the ho- almost always, it's for the hope of a better life. That's why you go through the strain and the stress of going to a completely different country. Is that the reason why Ruth immigrates No, it's not. Ruth doesn't immigrate from Moab to Judah for that reason at all. She's got nothing to gain by leaving Moab and heading to Judah. It's clearly referenced in her words. She says, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Ruth was not hoping for a better life. As Naomi described, she's got no hope there. She's got no husband, no children, no money, no property if she moves to Judah. But she was so dedicated to Naomi, she was willing to do it. So Ruth had a tough life. She had hardships. You can't say she had it easy because she certainly did not. And look, this is, the, this is the crushing part a little bit here. The good stuff is later. Don't worry. Don't get too crushed by this. But sometimes it's easy for us to go, well, I don't have the capacity to love because of my past, because of my financial situation, because of hardships in my life. I, I, I'm guilty of this myself. Sometimes I think, I'll do a better job of, of, of loving people when my four beautiful young children are older. Then it'll be easier, you know? And they, like children, they're, they're not a hardship, they're a blessing, but they can be a beautiful temporary hardship in their own way, if I can say that diplomatically with my own children in the room there, as well as lots of kids here. But just marvel for a moment about how tough, how tough Ruth's life was, but how much love and faithfulness she offered. That's the first one. The second one is... That Ruth's love is selfless. Ruth's got nothing to gain by following Naomi to Judah, as we said. There's no prospects for her going there. Hanging out with Naomi also doesn't seem like a real hoot either. Like she just changed her name to Bitter. She's been through a tough time, but 
doesn't sound like the person you want to just hitch your life to, does it? You know what I mean? It's a, you know, living with that, I can't imagine would be super, super easy. But she loves Naomi, even in Naomi's bitterness. Even though Naomi has nothing to offer her, she loves Naomi. Her love is selfless. And I've learned something about selfless love. I learned something from the, the story of the prodigal son about selfless love. And we all know the story of the prodigal son, don't we? You know, there's a father, he's got two sons, and the younger son says to him, look, Dad, I want to go and do my own thing. I'm sick of hanging out with you. I want my inheritance now, and I'm, and I'm going to head off, you know? So the, the father is, is saddened by this, but he gives him his inheritance and says, well, it's your choice. And he lets the, the young son, the youngest brother go, and he goes out and he squanders his inheritance, he squanders his money, he, he parties, he does whatever he wants, but in the end he's left with no money and he's sitting there and he goes, you know what, I should just go back to my father and at least be a servant in my father's household. So he goes, journeys back to the father. Before he can give his apology, the father wraps his arms around him and says, son, you're home. And he's so overjoyed to see his youngest son again. And they go and have a party. And the, the older brother Here's the party going on. Here's the party going on. He's like, what's, what's going on here? And the, the servants tell him, your younger brother is home. You know, that, they're chucking a party. They're celebrating that he's come back. And he goes up there and he, the older brother, is furious. He's not happy about it at all. He doesn't even go into the party. He waits outside and, the, and they go in there and tell the father, oh, you're, you're, you know, your, your older son's outside. He's not very happy, you know. So he goes out to him and, the, and, and he says to his dad, he's like, oh, I'm so, I'm so angry about this. And why is he angry about it? Why is he angry? Like the, the, the father says to him, he says, Son, everything I have is yours. But we are celebrating because your brother was lost but is now found. And the brothers, they're, they're actually both selfish in their own way. For the younger brother, it's obvious his selfishness. But for the older one, it's a little bit harder to see because he's been working real hard. He's been working hard, not because he loves the father, though. He's working hard to get a good inheritance. He's not working selfless, selflessly. The younger brother coming home means that he might need to give up a portion of his inheritance, and he's not happy about it. And God the Father says, look, everything I have is yours. He's saying, I've given you everything. He knows that the older son is focused on the inheritance, but he's saying, stop thinking about the inheritance. Stop thinking about yourself and just love me and your brother. And the, the, the love we see in this story, the love from Ruth, it's like that. It just loves without a thought for it herself. It's selfless love. And that's, that's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to love through hardships. It's hard to love selflessly. It's not easy to do. We'd like to just say, oh yeah, that's what we've got to do. Let's go and do it. Let's go and do a church. But it's not as easy as that. And that's why the third point is the most important of all. And that's that Ruth's love offers hope. This first chapter, it's filled with loss, filled with sadness and bitterness. And within that desolation, the only hope is offered through Ruth's love and faithfulness. When all seem lost, Ruth's words stand out. As a courageous stance in the face of struggle. Her words are beautiful in this passage. They're actually, I've heard that passage read at weddings before. You know, you think this passage is Ruth 1, read at a wedding. It seems weird, doesn't it? But her words are even read at weddings. And let, let me read them for you. It says, where you go, I go. It's all gushy and beautiful at the wedding. It's like, where you live, I'll live. 
your people are my people, your God is my God. It's all, yeah, it's so sweet, it's the nicest tea, it's, a, it's beautiful at this wedding, and they, they read that passage and it's so nice, and it is, it is beautiful. That's where they usually stop, at the weddings, of course. They don't read the next line, but the next line is just as important. It says, where you die, I'll die, and that's where I'll be buried, so help me, God, not even death itself is going to come between us. And Ruth knew there was a reasonable prospect that she would die in Judah. How were they going to get food and survive? She had no support network there, but she was prepared to die. She said, nothing will stop me from being with you, Naomi. I will be with you to the end. I will love you to the end, even if it means death. And this is where this account of Ruth draws these beautiful parallels, foreshadowing another story. It starts in Bethlehem. We read it not too long ago about hope in the midst of darkness, about a love that says nothing will come between us, not even death itself. Ruth says nothing will come between us. I will follow you, Naomi, until I die and then be buried with you. And Jesus says nothing will come between us. I love you so much that I will die on the cross and be buried, but I'm not staying buried. (laughs) I will do more than just submit to death. I will overcome death to break the barriers of sin and death that come between us so we can be together forever. It says in Hebrews, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In Matthew 28, I am surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In Romans 8, this beautiful passage says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a beautiful words. In this dark story of loss, we see in Ruth this little glimmer of hope, just a little slice of the hope that was to be fulfilled through Jesus. And if, and if, Ruth, if Ruth is kind of foreshadowing the role of Jesus, then who does that make us, us in, this story, in this story? Naomi. We're the ones that can be bitter, saying, look, it's too hard. Life hasn't been what I wanted. And God says, I will love you always. I will pursue you. My love for you will not cease. You will not escape it. Nothing can separate you from my love. And if we want to love despite hardships, if we want to love selflessly without regard for ourselves, the first thing we need to do is drink deeply of the love that's poured out for us. He's the one that endured the most hardships. His love is the most selfless. And his love offers the most hope. It's not easy. It's not easy, is it? We're going to make mistakes. We're going to make mistakes. But God says, look, his love will never cease. I will never leave you or forsake you. So we're just going to get the music team to come up now as well too as I I pray for us, as we want to drink deeply of God's love. Let's pray. Yes, Lord. Thank you, God, that you love us, that you pursue us, God, that you have paid the price for us because you loved us that much, God. We see in this story of Ruth in this first chapter, we see the faithfulness of Ruth on display. And Lord, we want to be faithful people, God. We want to love people. We want to step out and and be selfless in that love. Even when we're going through hard times, we want to do that, God, but we know we can't do it in our own strength. 
We need your hope. We want to reflect your light, your love, God. We want to love like Ruth. We want to accept the security thirst that comes from the love of Jesus. That's what's going to give us the strength to love despite hardships, to love selflessly, to love with a hope in you and to share that hope with this world, Father, in this year, in this new year. So, Lord, I pray for us as we, as we go out today, Lord, as we reflect, as we worship, as we respond to you, God, that our response will be accepting, Lord, accepting of the love that you've given for us, the love that's pursued us, that says, surely I am with you to the very end of the age, God. You are with us. You are for us, Lord. And you have demonstrated that by sending your Son to pay the price for us, God, for being buried and for rising again, Lord. So just thank you for this story of Ruth, for the hope, for the redemption, for what it teaches us about love, God, but mostly what it teaches us about your hope and our hope in you, Father. Amen. Amen. I just want to invite you to, um, to respond. We're going to sing this song that says, Build my life. Build my life upon your love. What a beautiful response to this passage that we have just talked about this morning. So I just invite you to stand with us as we sing. Thank you.